a man who smelled like a brewery. He flopped down on a seat at a bus stop next to a priest. And the man's shirt, as he sat down, was stained and clothes and uh, his half-empty bottle of wine was sticking out of his torn coat pocket. Well, he sat down, he opened up his newspaper and began reading, looking at the headlines and then just kind of the situations. Well, needless to say, the, the priest wasn't real happy. He became uncomfortable at the smell and the appearance of his seatmate. He didn't say anything at first. But after a few minutes, the disheveled guy turned to the priest and asked, Say, Father, what causes arthritis? Well, in his annoyed state, the priest really didn't think that well. And he kind of retorted rather flippantly, Mister, it caused by someone who's being with cheap women and too much alcohol and contempt for your fellow man. Well, I'll be, the drunk muttered to himself as he looked at his paper again. And the priest, realizing the error of his comment, apologized. Oh, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry, sir. I really am. I didn't mean to be so rude. How long have you had arthritis? He asked the man. Oh, oh, I don't, reverend, said the guy. I was just reading here that the Pope does. Ooh, I thought that was kind of cool. It kind of makes the point of where we're going with this this morning. It's kind of like the priest, you know, too often we can, we can make assumptions about people that can be completely wrong. You ever done that? I have. I'm not proud of it, but it happens. What you thought was something to do, well, we can make assumptions not only about man, but we can make assumptions about God that can be completely wrong. We too often try to squeeze the creator God and all of his awesomeness into a box which we can comprehend or handle with our feeble little finite minds. We figure, I've got to be able to understand every aspect of God or he doesn't exist or he doesn't count or he can't do anything and help me. But when we do that, when we do that, we put him and what we allow. I'm wondering, Kevin, can you get this little piece at the bottom? It's cutting off my bottom line. If you can get that out of there, that would be helpful. It's, it's hard for us to comprehend what God is doing to us. And, and more seriously, we, we try to limit what God is allowed to do in other people when we put God in this box. Well, this morning, in the lesson that I've chosen from Luke, we're going to encounter a group of folks who knew Jesus very well. We're talking 2,000 years ago. And the stories about Jesus going home, a kind of a homecoming. Sad to say those folks who thought they knew Jesus fairly well tried to stuff him into their box of preconceived, of what Jesus ought to be, what they wanted Jesus to be. Spoiler alert, it didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work because, as Isaiah the prophet, 700 years earlier, had correctly said, describing who this Messiah guy was going to be, here's what Isaiah wrote. For my thoughts, God, he's speaking on behalf of God, my thoughts are not your thoughts, talking to us. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Okay, he kind of nails it there, doesn't he? He's saying, I'm God, you're not. I understand things that you don't. 
And Isaiah was saying that to the folks listening 700 years before, but it applied to our lesson for this morning where Jesus going home to his family, friends, and, and childhood neighborhood. Here's what our text says this morning. Jesus returned to Galilee, that's where he grew up in northern Israel, in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He's, he's becoming more popular at this point. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Wow, that's pretty good. Young boy, grew up, made things happen. Jesus had done some amazing things up to that point. During those first years of his public ministry, he had a little less than three years of total public ministry, and he had about a year under his belt, and people were starting to take notice of him. More importantly, however, he had taught and preached some amazing things. People were just in awe of what this guy was saying. There were these fantastic reports about his ministry, and they reached the folks back in Nazareth, his hometown. Boy, were they proud. So when Jesus finally arrived in the old neighborhood, the, the level of anticipation and excitement, it was high. I mean, can you imagine it? Here's Jesus returning and began to visit his family, catch up what had been going on. Like, hey, what's been going on, Joe, since I've been gone? Hey, Susie, how's it going? You got your family and kids yet? I'm just talking through all the stuff that you do when you come home after being gone. Well, the town's folks would be curious about the reports they'd been hearing. So when the Sabbath rolled around, Jesus was asked to read from the Holy Scriptures. That was quite an honor. And verses 18 and 19 record what Jesus read. Here's what Jesus was in the hand of the Bible, the scroll, and he read this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He set me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Woo! Pretty powerful stuff. He's saying, God's appointing me, folks. Me, me, me. Well, once Jesus read that passage, he rolled it up because it's a scroll, it wasn't a book, and he handed it back to the caretaker, which the elder on duty that day. And then he sat down to teach. That's what they did. They didn't stand up and, and preach in sermon format. They, they, they taught. And then Jesus said this. The people, they're anticipating. They thought, oh, that's Messiah language. He's talking about the fulfillment that we've been waiting for since Adam and Eve. This is going to be good, good, good stuff. And so Jesus says this in Luke 4.20. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Woo! Now, up to this point, everything had been going just fine. When Jesus made this statement, however, oh, sparks began to fly. Here's what it says as we continue on. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built. Pretty rocky, steepy, cliffy is where Nazareth is. It's not on a plain. So they get him up in a hill, and they were going to Throw him off the cliff. <laughs> Apparently they had some ticked off people, didn't they? Well, what happened? I mean, how could these folks go from adoration for the hometown hero to attempting to murder him? Well, they could, sad to say, because of their misconceptions. And that's kind of where I'm going with this theme this morning. You see, they had this, first of all, there's several misconceptions about who Jesus is because they had these high hopes for him. But part of that is based on the misconception of what the Messiah would be like. 
I love this picture. You notice what he's got on his head? That's a yarmulke. That's a, a Jewish symbol there. So you got this Superman, Jewish Superman is kind of what they had in mind. So Jesus' family and friends and neighbors, they gathered to hear the local hometown boy come back as a hero. Very proud of this little guy, no longer little. This is now, he's probably 30, 31 years old, somewhere in that area, which was considered to be a fully mature man. He'd made it. He had become successful in the big league. Well, the fly in the ointment for these folks was they had this, this, this perception, this assumption regarding who and what the prophesied Messiah would be like. Jesus had just read, he said, I'm anointed, I'm the one, it's fulfilled in me. <laughs> and they're, they're looking at this guy and said, we know you. I mean, they had grown up with their parents and their parents' parents thinking and assuming the Messiah, the first promise to Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden thousands of years earlier. They had heard the story just as you and I have. And they assumed that this Messiah was going to act a certain way. They're growing up believing that the Messiah, the superhero, if you will, would be a Jewish superhero who would put things right politically and socially and religiously. The Messiah would drive out the current hated Roman occupational army who had invaded and conquered their lands and subjugated their people. So Jesus in their minds was supposed to be that kind of hero with a big S on his chest, so to speak. They listened with great interest and high expectations. Now he gets the scroll out and he starts to read, and they're expecting this rip-roaring speech about patriotic national loyalty and defeating the hated enemy and restoring Israel to the glory years of King David who had ruled a thousand years earlier. Yeah! And you're it, Jesus, and you're one of us. Well, it didn't happen, did it? Jesus did not say what the folks wanted or expected him to say. Hmm. Now, in today's world, we would have told Jesus, keep your mouth shut. He could have maintained a great following here in his hometown if he would have stuck to the script of the Jewish expectations, if he would just have played the folks' assumptions about the Messiah. Everything would have been fine. He could have finished his visit and gone on to other things, and they would have said, yep, that's my buddy. I remember when he and I used to play ball in the streets. But Jesus didn't. He risked his popularity for the sake of the truth. And here we go. This is one of those things I want you and I to think about for us today when we leave here this morning. Jesus risked his popularity being part of the accepted crowd for the sake of what? The truth. And it cost him dearly. It cost him dearly. His family, friends, neighbors turned on him. Turned on him with hostility and anger. Here's what it said. It said all the people, so it wasn't just one or two disgruntled folks, all the people in the synagogue were furious furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Oh, that's not a pretty sight. Not good. If only we, he would have kept his mouth shut. You ever been tempted to do that? You know something's not right, and you know this is going on, and, and you figure, I'm just going to keep my nose out of it. I'm not going to say it. It's not worth it. We've all done it. 
And there are times when that's okay. Shut your mouth. But when we start talking about God's stuff, you know, we have to remember that everybody's got this idea, their ideas about God, don't they? It's, I mean, that's no big surprise. Whether you're uh, whatever religion or national origin you might be, everybody's got this idea about what God is like and what he does and what he's going to do. Well, here in the West, in the United States and Europe and so on, we've grown up with certain understandings about God, about specifically Jesus. Those of you who grew up in the church with your Sunday school, I remember the little pamphlets, a little three-ring binder, which each week we'd get a little booklet or a little pamphlet, and, and we got these pictures on them. I loved looking at those pictures. And so we have this image of who Jesus is. What did he look like? You know, we got all these different pictures that we've seen. You've seen them all. All kinds of different ones. Well, what did he really look like? I mean, here in the West, what do we picture? We picture him with flowing brown hair and blue eyes, of course, and a nice tan. Was he really about 5'10", 5'11", 175 pounds, handsomely fit? I mean, don't we picture in our mind a nice man teaching some nice things so we might become nice people? Well, the reality is our most common image of the physical Jesus is wrong, I'm sorry. You see, he was more likely a man of his age, of his, of his period of time, 2,000 years ago in the Mideast. He was probably five foot two, five foot three, very dark hair, dark eyes. He most likely had a, had a hook-shaped nose and, and looked more like an, an Arab camel driver than a Hollywood celebrity. He wasn't what you would call this striking, leading man type. And yet that's what we always picture him as. Rather, here's what Isaiah described, that when the Messiah comes, here's what he's going to look like. It says, not having any beauty or majesty to attract us to him. So he's not a leading man type guy. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Well, besides the physical attributes of Jesus, another popular misconception which permeated the Jewish folks in Jesus' day and hasn't changed. We still have it. You and I have it right now. There's an awful lot of folks who, in Christian circles, regard pain and suffering and prosperity as something that the Christians have a special spot. That we have a certain standard of living ahead of the rest of the world because we're Christians. Many folks feel, and you hear it stated in, if not overt ways, at least subtle ways, they feel like, you know, if you're a real Christian, if you are a really Christian, God won't allow you to suffer. And when we do, we kind of hang our head in shame, like, what did I do? Well, way too many folks back then, as well as today, fling this this misconception and cling to it that good Christians always get blessed. Always get blessed. <laughs> okay, you're ready to leave yet? I haven't exactly encouraged you with a whole bunch of good stuff. You're asking now that Pastor Neil has popped my bubble of understanding what's the truth about this Jesus guy. How do I know whether I'm on the right path? You know, there's an awful lot of religions in the world. What do we do? Well, I'll give you a couple of tests to ask yourself to find out about the historical Jesus and about what God has promised whom he would be like. The first one is, is check the facts. Get the book. 
get in that book. I'm talking about the Bible. Because the Bible, written over thousands of years, talks about what God has given to people, what he expects of people. And we can compare what the Bible has said about the Messiah since the time of Adam and Eve, when God said, I'm going to send someone to patch things up between me and you. So, first piece of advice for you and for me, check it out. What does the Bible say this Messiah is going to be like? What's he going to do? What kind of person is he going to be? And then after reading the many descriptions, there's hundreds, hundreds of them in the Bible about who this Messiah was going to be without naming him as Jesus until later. So ask yourself after reading the many descriptions, did this guy Jesus live up to those expectations? Well, and as you ask that, kind of watch as you're reading through his life cycle how Jesus moved among the crowds. Listen to what he said and what he taught. And think about how he interacted with other folks. And then, then come to your conclusions. But check it out, first of all. What does it say? Not what some opinion of somebody sitting in some ivory tower is saying. You check it out yourself in the Bible. Second thing that you can do, a little test, is try on some new shoes. By that I mean, look at Jesus through a different set of lenses. You know, here in the West, how do we view Jesus? I showed those pictures earlier of what we oftentimes think of Jesus. Well, was Jesus really a middle-class white American? <laughs> and of course, we shake our heads. Well, no, of course not. But too often, our view of Jesus, at least here in the United States, is of a middle-class white American with our current customs, our current practices. And when we assume that Jesus is around, that that's what he's going to be like. So when you form your ideas about the Lord, my friends, put yourself in the shoes of someone else. For instance, I've, I've heard it said quite often, and I'm guessing you have too, that Jesus would never, never condone clapping or shouts of praise the Lord in church. Uh-oh, we're in trouble here, aren't we? Well, if that's true, then why does the same Jesus rejoice over clapping in churches in Kenya or Liberia or or? so many different places throughout the world. Here's a third test you can ask yourself about who Jesus is and the conceptions we have of him. Does Jesus bless those who love him with more and better material things? I mean, that's kind of an assumption that we just make. Well, I can assure you that folks in the third world countries, they love Jesus just as much as you and I do. And yet, what do we know? Oftentimes, they're starving and sleeping in cardboard houses. Does that mean that Jesus loves them less? Not only did these folks in Jesus' old neighborhood in our text this morning have misconceptions about Jesus, they also had some wrong ideas about other people. And the point for you and me today is, so do we. Jesus proclaimed what his ministry was going to be about in I'm not going to go back to it now, but you listen to those things that it said the Messiah was appointed to do. Most of them had to do with caring for people who were less than on the economic and social and political scale high end. Jesus proclaimed what his ministry was going to be about and made it clear it wasn't just about the Jewish folks. Oh boy. He uses an example to talk about whom Jesus came to serve and to save. He used the example of of two of the Old Testament prophets' greatest guys. One was Elijah, and the other was Elisha. And Jesus points out their miracles. 
And what he points out is they weren't performed within the boundaries of Israel. Woo! Rather, the miracles of these well-known and respected prophets had performed, they were done in front of the Gentiles, the non-Jews, those folks the Jews called dogs. And whether you know it or not, the Christian message today in 2020 is most rapidly growing, where do you think? Not here in the United States, surely not in Western Europe, but mostly in Southeast Asia and South America and Africa. It's booming. Millions and millions of people are being touched with the message of Jesus and becoming Christians. Well, that doesn't sit well with us Westerners who think we've got the, we've got the franchise on good Christian stuff. Well, that's what Jesus was pointing out using Elijah and Elijah. It wasn't just for the Jewish folks, and that didn't sit well. You see, the Jews called the non-Jews dogs. <laughs> and dogs in the Old Testament culture generally were viewed negatively. I mean, they weren't viewed as the cute little puppies who are loved household pets. We spend billions of dollars here in the United States on feeding these critters. Dogs was, were, by the Jewish folks, were mostly associated with violence and uncleanness. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 19, appears to equate dogs and prostitution. Now, how they got that one, I don't know. But the book of Kings includes several references to dogs feeding on corpses. So you see, the Jewish folks and their concept of dogs was not good. Therefore, when the Jewish folks are saying Gentiles are nothing better than dogs. The Jewish folks wanted nothing to do with the Gentiles because God is obviously our God. Jesus was for them and them alone. So the Jewish folks, the faithful, were waiting for the real Messiah, the one who would, who would bring the guts and the glory through power and might. Yeah, they were expecting a hero who would come and live up to their Jewish expectations part of which was, destroy those heathen Gentiles. Bad, boo, hiss. And then, as I said, you look at the Bible, how did Jesus act towards these non-Jewish folks? He didn't do what the Jews thought they was going to. So it was understandable, therefore, with that mindset that they had for them, to wonder, who is this imposter Jesus? We thought we knew them. Before them, they saw the young guy that they thought they knew pretty well. He was Joe the carpenter's boy. Joseph and Mary's oldest son. He had four brothers, and we know at least two sisters, and Jesus was the oldest of all of those growing up in this small town. Worked hard. Good guy. And now they're asking, well, well who is this guy really? Because the Jewish perception restricted Messiah's ministry to the ethnic, pure-blooded Israelites. It was in reality, and the truth for us today is the same. It's far bigger than the Jewish folks realized. Jesus' ministry was for the benefit of all people. Not just the Jews alone. Well, that was a radical concept to the Jews. And it caused the faithful Jewish folks' heads to spin. It wasn't what they expected. You see, God's purposes in choosing them was not to save them in isolation, but so that they could be his instruments by which he would bring salvation to the whole world. 
His plans and his purposes were to save the Jews and the Gentile. Wow. They didn't see that one coming. They didn't like it, and they felt betrayed. Well, the folks in our text today, they had three problems. They had three problems in coping with Jesus. First, they were proud and couldn't admit it. We're special. Secondly, they were ignorant and didn't know it. They thought they knew what the Messiah was going to be like and what God wanted, but they really didn't. And thirdly, they were in bondage and couldn't see it. You see, they were too proud to admit God's work didn't revolve only around them. Woo! That's kind of like a little baby. It's kind of hard for the little baby to realize there's life beyond them. That's not how they think. You get a little older and you find it's not just about themselves. Well, that's what the Jewish folks were, and I'm wondering about you and me. Secondly, these folks' problem was that they were ignorant about Jesus. Rather than taking time to investigate, who is this guy really? They thought they knew because this is what I learned in Sunday school. They thought they knew what he was saying to them. And as a result, when he didn't live up to that, they had this knee-jerk reaction, tried to kill him. And thirdly, they were in bondage to their misconception. So long as they were unwilling to let Jesus out of the box they had created for him, the Jews would never know the freedom that Jesus offers. So that kind of brings us to the summarizing of where we are today and what do we learn from these folks? Because the reality is we're not a whole lot different than them. You see, it takes a person of deep humility to recognize and admit being wrong. These folks were wrong. They weren't willing to admit it. What do you think the punchline is for you and me? How about us? Have we boxed ourselves into a corner? It's a hard one because I know that for the most part, we're trying to do the right thing, aren't you? I mean, you're not saying, I'm intentionally going to do some stupid stuff that's anti-God. No, that's not what we're doing. But is our pride keeping us from enjoying the freedom that Christ offers? Could be, could be. So perhaps one of our goals is that we can seek to be happily willing to share the hope and forgiveness that Jesus has brought to all folks. Sounds simple, but sometimes it's hard. Or wanting to keep all the good stuff for ourselves, allowing only the crumbs to fall the other folks, to the non-Christian or the new Christian. Friends, may God shape our attitudes and our understandings about his love for me. And realize that love also has been branched out to all other folks as well. May God help us with our mindset, our attitudes, and our actions. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.